What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, Slap Stocks' weekly NBA update podcast. I'm your host, Sam. I thought the big news this week was going to be all Zion, and obviously that changed over the weekend. I understand that we've reached critical mass on Kobe content, but I am going to spend a minute on him here anyways. Now, growing up, I hated Kobe Bryant, and I'm sure a lot of you did. And there are very few athletes that I've ever really disliked more, and he had absolutely nothing to do with my favorite team. Not a rival, not even in the same conference. The problem was, he was the antithesis of everything that I knew as a Bucks fan growing up. While he played for the glitz and glam Lakers, I was rooting for a flyover team. While he was perennially competing for championships, I was rooting for a team selling out for the 8th seed. And while he was mostly loyal to LA for 20 years, I was rooting for a rotating door of Tim Thomas and Corey Maggette and Charlie Bell. You know, I was a kid on the playground running my mouth about how selfish he was and how he never passed the ball and how Shaq was just all around better. It was one of my most exciting days as a basketball fan when Shaq left Los Angeles and went to South Beach to team up with my favorite NBA player of the time, former Marquette Golden Eagle from Milwaukee, Dwayne Wade. Uh, The next year, they won the championship. Kobe did not, and it was all the validation I needed. But then at the 2008 Olympics, LeBron, Wade, Mello, they all played with Kobe, and they came out talking about how awesome it was to pick his brain and how much they learned and what a privilege it was, and I hated it. In the following season, it was the best of Dwayne Wade's career, and it was a dagger to my soul. Near the end of his career, I did start to come around on Kobe like I think most people did, as he kind of started to retcon his image a little bit. I really liked him as he visibly embraced his role as a father and a family man, and I loved it when he started mentoring Giannis. And today, I greatly appreciate Kobe, because all of the things that I hated about Kobe all those years, Giannis is really the same today. Fiery competitor, insatiable work ethic, doesn't chum around with other players, loyal, a winner. I'm in love, and that was Kobe for all those years. You know, he vigorously pursued greatness in every area of his life, and that's admirable. When he was 17 years old, while the rest of us at that age are trying to figure out who we are, he knew that he wanted to be the greatest Laker of all time, and he willed it into existence. You know, there are so many players that we all like or dislike, But he was one of the few players that every single NBA fan had an emotional attachment to, whether it was out of love or hate. So I won't pretend that I loved him. But he reached heights that very few have. He competed with an unrivaled work ethic. He created feelings in us that very few will ever again. He will be missed. Rest in peace, Mamba. Moving on to the next big news of the week, our boy Zion Williamson. Uh, We all saw his first game. He had that insane three-minute spurt to save the game. That was must-see TV. He's been good so far. 24 minutes a game, 18 points, 8.3 rebounds, 1.5 assists, shooting 6.33 from the field. Really good stuff in there. Uh, There have been some worrying signs. You know, if you've been watching, maybe you see he kind of drags his bad leg around when he's running. Uh, It appears that he's still loosening up. He's clearly not totally in shape yet. Now, he seems like he gets winded from time to time. Uh, really only goes all out when he's got one of those fast breaks or a brilliant shot-blocking opportunity. At times, he appears to be pretty lax on defense or in rebounding situations, kind of just using his athleticism to take advantage of situations rather than using his athleticism to set himself up in good situations to begin with. But you know what? A lot of that can be explained by the fact that he's just coming back from a meniscus surgery and he's a little bit out of shape. Uh, But it's great to see what we've seen so far. The minutes have been ticking up. The Pelicans have won their last two. They're gunning for the eighth seed in the playoffs, and it would be great to see Zion in the playoffs this year. 
Super small sample size, but Zion has been a net positive in every single game he's been in so far. Through four games, his on-off point differential is uh, positive 14.7 points. Uh, that'll change a bit as the season goes on, but you know, just looking at these games, he's been the best player on the court oftentimes. In their loss against the Nuggets, his second game played on the on January 24th, he played 21 minutes, and he was a plus 16 during that time, meaning that cumulatively the Pelicans gained 16 points over the Nuggets when he was on the floor. The rest of the team, Lonzo Ball was a negative 18, Ingram was a negative 5, Redick a negative 23, Jackson Hayes a negative 14, uh, Drew Holiday was a plus 4, in 38 minutes. So just looking at him and, and how much the Pelicans have thrived when he's been on the court, it's really been an incredible start so far. A lot of people have been asking why Zion's cards are doing better, you know, for instance, than Luca's. Um, in our post last week, we focused on Zion's ungraded base Prism rookie cards, which are currently going for around 80 bucks. Luca, he's also going in that neighborhood, but he's shown himself to be an MVP candidate and Zion has only played four games. There are a few reasons for that. You know, even though we all love him now, there was very real doubt about whether or not Luca's game would translate to the NBA. I thought at the time that it would definitely translate, but I didn't see any highlights or anything. It was just something I wanted to have happen. And there was so much more risk for Luca coming in than Zion, even with Zion's injury concerns. You know, while people talk about Zion's body and and, and you know his weight. There's been so much more talk over Luca's body to this point in his career. I've heard him described as looking like a 7-Eleven employee, which honestly is pretty fitting. And meanwhile, Zion came into the league looking like Adonis. And there have been hasn't been anyone since LeBron James who came in with as much hype. And like it or not, this is really what is driving Zion's prices. It's simple supply and demand. There are simply more casual collectors who are going after Zion cards right now than there ever have been for Luca. Now, there's another aspect to this that, that Aaron outlined in an Instagram post yesterday. When we're looking at Zion Prism uh, rookie cards, PSA 10s, you know, there's just so much more available of Lucas. You know, there are nearly 8,000 Luca Prism uh, rookie cards out there, PSA 10 graded, whereas Zion only has 150. The market should be flooded with PSA 10s for, for Zion pretty soon. It's the simple laws of supply and demand that dictate that we should see a bit of a cooling off period for Zion. Not that we expect him to get worse, not that we expect people to lose interest or his hype to die down, but if 7,000 Zion PSA 10s flood the market tomorrow, it will be a buyer's market. Zion has so far been everything that we could have hoped for. The mania is real. He looks like he'll be one of the faces of the NBA for years to come. He's got an infectious smile and personality of a marquee player that the league is going to want to market around. All the signs point to him being a good investment for years and years to come. If the market is flooded with him in the next month or two, you should just try and get your hands on one. I think it will come at a reasonable valuation and you should still have some opportunity for long-term growth. Now, some of the questions around Zion arise in connection with his teammates. Now, there are a relatively set amount of shots that can be taken by a team and possessions to go around throughout the course of a game. Zion Williamson, he's going to absorb a healthy number of those, especially as he gets healthier. And that brings concerns for his teammates, especially probably most for Brandon Ingram. You know, on the season, Ingram's been great. He's averaging 18 field goal attempts per game, um, but in the past four games with Zion, he's averaging only 14. It's a super small sample, but it is something to watch. If the attempts go down, so will his raw scoring numbers. 
Now, a large percentage of Ingram's offense does come in isolation, and he's been good at that. He's placing in the 82nd percentile of ISO scorers in the NBA this year. And while that's good for him and good for his numbers, uh, as ISO offense often does, it doesn't necessarily help out his teammates and can sometimes kill the rhythm of the offense. Now, with that being his bread and butter so far, Zion's arrival does cause some concern. Zion has a 28% usage so far in four games, and that's going to hurt Ingram if all Ingram does is ISO scoring. But I don't think it's going to kill Ingram. Because one of the improvements that we've seen so far this season from Ingram is catch-and-shoot situations. In these situations, he's been super effective with a 62.5% effective field goal percentage in catch-and-shoot. He's shown an improvement in both playmaking and scoring in a catch-and-shoot situation. And these are the types of possessions that should increase for him. With all the attention that Zion creates, Zion has a ton of gravity on the offense, meaning that teams are sagging, doing a lot, or doing everything they can to try and prevent him from scoring, and that's going to increase open looks for guys like Ingram. They are going through an adjustment period right now, to be sure, and that'll probably continue, but if Ingram can make some meaningful adjustments to his game as he has all season long, there's no reason why this can't be an effective relationship between these two long-term. Looking at Ingram's base prism rookie card, PSA 10s, uh, overall, they're up in the new year about 14%, uh, but recently they have taken a bit of a downturn. They're down 15% since Zion's debut. I think the concern is pretty clearly due to his pairing with Zion, but I'm actually feeling optimistic. I think there's a pretty good chance that Ingram is named an all-star tomorrow, which would be a big step in his career and will create some positive buzz. Overall, I'm still buying Ingram, and on top of that, I'm buying today. A couple other all-stars that I wanted to talk about. First up, Pascal Siakam. Uh, you might have seen the post yesterday, but I thought it would flesh it out a bit more here. Uh, we saw some major gains for the fourth-year player this year. He's had uh, an incredible leap. From year two to year three, he went from 20 minutes and 7 points per game to 32 minutes and 17 points per game uh, last year, along with 7 rebounds and 3 assists and good defense. Uh, the market treated him with trepidation all offseason. The question was, could he do it without Kawhi Leonard? Uh, well, he really started to prove that earlier in this year, and his base prism rookie PSA 10 skyrocketed from $55 to $145 in just over a month. So much of that was based off of hype, and media attention, but all that, that all came on the back of some really impressive play as the Raptors' lead guy. And then he got hurt in the middle of December. We kind of forgot about him, and predictably, the market dropped. And right now, these same cards are going in the mid-$80 range, uh, but he's back. He's playing very well once more. He just got selected as all-star starter for the first time in his career. Some of the buzz surrounding that selection was that Butler deserved it more, which maybe kind of hurt uh, Siakam. But if Siakam becomes a perennial all-star, which seems likely with the Eastern Conference lacking some of the upper echelon star power of the West, there is no reason why his cards cannot just increase in value over the next couple years. I am buying and holding long-term. Another player that was just named an all-star starter, Trey Young. First appearance of his career in only his second year. It's impressive. Now, based on his raw numbers, he deserves it and good for him. I am a bit more cautious on Trey Young long-term, and I don't want you to think I'm just trying to rock the boat here and be negative. You know, we all saw his awesome performance the other night when he was wearing number eight in honor of Kobe Bryant, and that was very cool. He's not 
very comparable to Kobe as far as his style of play goes, but since the comparison's now there, let's just run with that. Kobe, he also made his all-star team in the first or made his first all-star team in his second season. That year, he was playing with a 61-win Lakers team, while at the same point in his career, Trey Young is playing on the second-worst team in the league. Now, per 36 minutes, pay attention to these numbers, Trey Young is averaging 30 points, 4.7 rebounds, 9.3 assists, 1.2 steals, and shooting 45% from the floor while hitting three and a half threes per game. In the history of basketball, this is looking like an all-time great. Very few players have ever put up those numbers in their second season. By comparison, in his all-star second season, Kobe Bryant, per 36 minutes, he put up 21.4 points, 4.2 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 1.5 steals, while shooting 43% and making 1.3 threes per game. So, to sum it up, Trey has been better across the board. But so much of this is dictated by the era that we're in. And I'm not just talking about the three-point revolution. You know, Trey does jack up nearly two and a half times as many three per threes per game as Kobe did in his sophomore season. And that's just the difference in eras. But it does really help out Trey's raw scoring numbers. But there is another major difference in the eras, and that's found in the pace of play. In Kobe's sophomore season, the fastest team in the league that year was the Boston Celtics. They played with a pace of 94.9, meaning that in 48 minutes, they averaged just under 95 possessions per game. This year, the slowest team in the league is the Charlotte Hornets, and their pace is nearly two possessions better at just under 97 possessions per 48 minutes. So in 97-98, the Lakers were the second fastest team in the league. This year, the Hawks are the third fastest. But due to the eras... The Hawks averaged 12 more possessions per game this year than the Lakers did in 1998. Now consider that together with the quality of the teams. A 61-win Laker team versus a Hawks team on pace for 27 wins. Kobe only started one, win, one game that year, and he absorbed only 27% of his team's possessions, meaning that 27% of his team's possessions when he was on the court ended with him shooting a field goal or a free throw or turning the ball over. Meanwhile, on a very bad Hawks team, Trey Young naturally is given a much larger percentage of the offense, and he's sitting on a 34% usage, 7% higher than Kobe. And I believe I did the math correctly. If you take into consideration the pace of play and the respective usage percentages, Trey Young is averaging 11 more possessions per 48 minutes than Kobe did. So while he does have these jaw-dropping stats, we need to understand that it's just not quite as impressive as it looks compared to players of yesteryear. Taking this all into consideration as well, that Trey Young is one of the very worst defenders in basketball. He holds a defensive rating of 115.6, which is something like the 450th best defensive player in basketball this year. He is the physical embodiment of what his teammate Jabari Parker said last offseason, that you don't get paid to play defense. Part of the reason why the Hawks have the third fastest offense is simply because they have the league's third worst defense. The more points you give up generally correlates into more possessions for your team. And Trey Young is the worst defender of the bunch. To oversimplify all of this, Trey Young's bad defense is really leading to better offensive numbers for him. Now, it goes without saying, the pace of play does not guarantee that Trey puts up these numbers. He is a supremely gifted offensive player, but the raw numbers just don't tell the whole story. 
his offensive contributions do outweigh his defensive negatives. But I do still remain a bit doubtful about whether this style of play will ever translate into a true contender. I still think Trey Young is a very solid investment and will continue to put up the type of eye-popping stats which promote general demand for his cards, but I am pumping the brakes on him a bit, personally, as far as historical comparisons are concerned. He's a very good guard, but until he can prove that he can win, he's more eye candy than anything. Again, he's going to put continue to put up the requisite stats in all-star appearances for continued gains for investors, but thinking long-term... I would not be terribly surprised if four or five seasons down the line we start to get somewhat of a negative label on him as a guy that can produce numbers but can't really get his team over the hump. I'm still buying for now, but I do have the thought in the back of my mind that the hype could die down as he gets a bit older. All right, enough of these thought experiments. Some rapid fire here. Seku Dumbuya, we've talked about him a bunch. He was benched last week for disciplinary reasons. He missed a shoot-around last Wednesday, and so he didn't get a start for the first time since the beginning of the new year. And he's really kind of fallen off lately as well. From January 1st through the 15th, he was averaging 30 minutes, 14 points, 5 rebounds, and a steal while shooting 54% from the field and 41% from three. In the past two weeks, he's only playing 25 minutes. He's scoring a measly 4.5 points, four rebounds, and shooting an awful 26% from the field and 12% from three. And honestly, that's good for us. Now, Seiki was never supposed to be a play for this year. It was always more of a long-term play, and when he came out hot as he did, the market really got out of hand. The last couple of days, though, his ungraded silvers have been going for the low $30 range, which is much more palatable than the upper 70s and even up to, the, even up to $90 on a few sales that it was going for just a few weeks ago. So the hype has died down a bit with the poor with the poor play, and so have his card prices. Now, I don't think he'll stay this bad for the remainder of the season because no one shoots that poorly forever. This is a pretty good buying opportunity if that's the case, and I expect that now that the initial hype has died down, he'll remain a relatively good buy for the next couple of months. Now, this is a longer-term play, so I'm still relatively comfortable buying his potential here. Next up, Ryu Hachimura, who is supposedly close to returning to the court. You might remember back in December 16th, he was kicked in the groin by a teammate, which caused a rather bad groin contusion, which sounds awful. Uh, He's been out since then, but word is he could come back as soon as this weekend. He has been one of the more popular rookies in uh, this season in a class that's lacked a lot of depth, and he's averaged 13.9 points, 5.8 rebounds, and 1.6 assists in 29 minutes a game. There's nothing terribly exciting there, but he had been doing better in December before the injury. He had 17.3 points, 6.6 rebounds, and 2 assists on more minutes a game. And although it was nice to see that improvement, that did come about largely because Thomas Bryant missed the entire month of December, and Rui was playing more center minutes because of it. Playing center, his rebounds increased, his field goal percentage increased, and his scoring increased. The worry at the time was that once Bryant came back and some of these things would go away. Of course, Rui was injured before that could happen. Bryant is now back and playing again. And although Bryant is back and playing, it does appear that perhaps he doesn't have the total confidence of Scott Brooks. Uh, Yesterday against Milwaukee, Bryant did play in the 31 minutes, I believe. But before that, in the last seven games, he only averaged 17 minutes per game. If we see that trend continue, 
It could mean more minutes at the 5 for Rui than perhaps anticipated once everyone was healthy. There is also the Davis Bertans conundrum. He's averaged 28 minutes per night since his return from injury, and there is positional overlap with Rui and him as well. I really am of the opinion that they should be trading Bertans. He can command a rather significant value on a pretty barren trade market, and he is an unrestricted free agent next year, so he can walk this offseason anyways. Nevertheless, the Wizards have been insistent so far that they intend to keep him around because they like what he could bring to a John Wall-led team, and that wouldn't be great for Rui. My dream scenario for Hachimura is Bertans is traded, Bryant's minutes remain pretty low, and Rui has all the minutes that he can handle. He doesn't do enough outside of scoring to really be all that exciting without unlimited minutes, but if the minutes kind of clear up for him, I can see a path for some nice profit in the shorter term. His ungraded Prism Silvers are going for the $55 range, which is down about 40% from where he was at pre-injury. I'm not a long-term believer in Rui as a player, but I can see some nice value coming from him uh, at least this season and next, especially if things start breaking right around him. All right, last guy I want to mention, as this podcast is already running too long, in my opinion, uh, that's Marvin Bagley of the Sacramento Kings. He's just had a lost season so far. He missed 22 games with a fractured thumb to start the year. Then he played eight games, and then he missed eight more games with a midfoot sprain in his left foot. Then he came back to play four games, and now he's out again with soreness in the same foot. None of these injuries appear to be career-threatening, but the frequent injuries are becoming a bit of a concern. He also suffered a knee sprain last year, a bruised knee last year. All told, his rookie season, he missed 20 games from sickness and injury. This year, he's obviously already eclipsed that mark. So while he's a talented scorer and rebounder, it's just one of those things that some guys just tend to miss a lot of time. Injury is never really something that you can bank on one way or another. But when you're a six foot ten big man and you've missed 53 out of a potential 128 games so far in your, in your career, that is concerning. It's not a promising start to his career to be certain. His PSA 10 Prism Silver rookie cards are still going for around $100. And if you're in my financial situation, I would just sell and pocket the cash. It's just a bit too risky long-term for my liking. All right, that's all the time I have for. Thanks for tuning in.